0: Church, it's good to be with you. My name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at The Stone. We're going to be continuing our series called Fathom in the Gospel of Matthew today, in which we've been looking at the miracles of Jesus together. And so, what are some miracles? What are some things that we've seen Jesus do so far? We've seen him going around healing every sickness and every disease whether it's leprosy, whether it's blindness or paralysis, we see Jesus displaying his authority over every sickness, over every disease. We saw Jesus calming the wind and the sea. Jesus displaying his authority over the physical realm. We saw Jesus casting out demons. Jesus displaying his authority over the spiritual realm. And all of it, how? just with his word, right? Just by his word, he just simply speaks and it's done. And we saw him do all of these things, but last week we saw him doing something different. Last week we saw Jesus' authority to forgive sin. We saw Jesus say to a paralyzed man, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And we talked about how this was the greatest miracle of Jesus on display. Because Jesus could, not, Jesus could just say to the sick person, be healed, and it was so. He could just say to the demons, go, and they were gone. He could just say to the wind and the waves, be still, and they were stilled, all of it, without a sweat. But forgiving sin is different. Forgiving wouldn't be no sweat for Jesus. Forgiving would require that Jesus sweat great drops of blood. All of these other miracles would, in a sense, cost Jesus nothing. He could just command it, and it was so. But forgiving sins would cost Jesus everything. And so Matthew is just beautifully crafting the narrative To build up to this truth that though Jesus came doing many miracles and many wonders, that the greatest work he ever did, that the greatest miracle he ever performed was the work of the cross in forgiving our sins. And now it's almost as if here that Matthew can't contain himself. He can't just tell us about when Jesus forgave the paralyzed man. He has to tell us about the time that Jesus forgave him about the time when Jesus came to him, about the time when Jesus called him out and saved him. What Matthew is essentially telling us is, let me not just tell you about the greatest work that Jesus did for somebody else, but let me tell you about the greatest work that Jesus ever did for me. Let's read together, Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, After he healed the paralyzed man, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined that table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What we have here is essentially Matthew's testimony, Matthew is telling us how Jesus saved him. He's telling us about the greatest work, the greatest miracle that Jesus did for him. And so again, church, I don't know how you feel about your salvation. I don't know how you feel today. I don't know if you even thought about today the fact that if you're in Christ, Jesus has saved you. But as we look at Matthew's salvation story together, let's let's be reminded once again Let's be awakened once again. Let's be stirred up once again at the wonder of our salvation. Not just the greatest work that Jesus ever did for somebody else, but the greatest work that Jesus ever did for us. For me. Right? And so today we're going to be looking at a couple of things. First, the wonder of salvation. The wonder of salvation. How does it happen? How, does it, how did it happen for Matthew? And in it, we're going to see how it happened for us. And second, some genuine marks of someone who has truly been saved. If Jesus has truly saved us, what should our lives then look like? First, the wonder of salvation. How does it happen? How did it happen for Matthew? It says in verse 9 that Matthew was sitting at the tax booth. He was a tax collector, collecting taxes. Why is this significant in Matthew's story? Let me explain a bit about tax collectors in Jesus's day. When Rome came in and took over Israel, one of the ways that they subjugated the Israelites was to collect taxes from them, to take their money but they came up with an ingeniously evil way to collect these taxes. They didn't directly go themselves to collect taxes from the Jewish people. Instead, they told the Jewish people that they could essentially buy for themselves a taxation franchise to operate in a certain district or town, and it was an incredibly lucrative business to buy into. All you had to do, though, was betray your own people. But it was a for sure bet. It was a business that they didn't have to face the uncertainties of how the crops were going to do that year because of rain or no rain. They didn't have to face the uncertainties of having some economic downturn because these tax collectors, as they were, as long as they collected what the Roman government was requiring, everything else that they collected, they just got to keep. The Roman government gave them the freedom to tax whatever they wanted how much ever they wanted, it was totally up to their discretion. And if the people didn't like it, if they revolted, the Roman soldiers were right there to enforce it. And so can you imagine if the IRS had the freedom, had the discretion to just show up at your house or to just pull you over out on the road and on a whim decide what they were gonna tax you on that day, on a whim decide how much they were gonna charge you that day. Oh, it looks like you have an iPad. And an iPhone 11. Oh, you must be rich, so I'm going to tax you. Oh, it looks like you have four kids buckled in the back. You must be really rich to afford four kids, so I'm going to tax you. Oh, you have no kids. You must have a lot of discretionary income, and so I'm going to tax you. And if you thought it was unfair, if you refused, if you got angry, can you imagine the police being right there to enforce you paying them? Can you imagine how infuriating all of this would be, how much you would hate the IRS agent? But that's exactly what's happening here. But as if that wasn't bad enough, we have to realize that this wasn't just a man betraying his own people. This was a man betraying God's covenant people. And so in so doing, he was betraying God himself. And so when it says that Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax booth, what Jesus saw was Matthew sitting there in the middle of the busiest road in Capernaum, stopping each passerby to tax them on whatever he wanted, how much ever he wanted, with each transaction saying, who cares about these people? Who cares about your people, God, as long as I get what's mine? Being a tax collector was literally seen to be the vilest thing that you could be at the time. And so you weren't allowed in synagogue for worship. They didn't allow you there. You were listed by the rabbis as one of the unclean things that God's people couldn't come in contact with. You were hated. You were ostracized. You weren't allowed to give testimony in court because there was just no way that tax collectors could ever be believed, could ever be trusted. They lied. They cheated all the time. And so think about this. A tax collector was somebody who never had to endure a physical drought, Whether it rained or not, they didn't care. They didn't give a rip. They were were still rich. There was still money to be collected. But they had to endure a different kind of drought. They had to endure the drought of worship. They couldn't go into the synagogue. They had to endure the drought of community. They were declared to be unclean. The drought of experiencing God and the joy of being with his people had to go through the drought of never being believed or entrusted with anything good, with anything significant. Nobody believed him. Can you imagine never being believed? Can you imagine never being entrusted? And this is what Jesus also saw. Jesus not only saw in Matthew a man filled to the brim with greed, with betrayal and selfishness, but he also saw in Matthew a man filled with utter desperation, utter loneliness and despair, a man now trapped in a decision that he had made long ago to put himself in that tax booth with no hope of escaping. And think about this with me. Who is writing this? Who is writing this? Matthew, right? Matthew. Matthew's in the middle of writing all the amazing miracles that Jesus is doing. Let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about this. And then he gets to the paralyzed man. Let me tell you about the greatest miracle of them all, how he forgives sins. And then he stops. And he says, man, I've got to tell them about when he forgave me. But he can't just immediately start writing, he has to put his pen down because he remembers once again vividly the way that Jesus had stopped and looked at him. Matthew wrote, Jesus saw a man named Matthew. And what a seeing it must have been Of course, Matthew had seen before the way that people looked at him with anxiety and fear, worried about how much he was going to tax them. Of course, Matthew had seen before the look of sheer hatred and disgust as they passed on to him what they were charged. And of course, Matthew had seen before the look of indifferent dismissal from the Roman officials as he handed to them a portion of what was collected. But Matthew had never seen a look such as this. Jesus looked at Matthew, and for the very first time, Matthew encountered a look of love. Here was one who would care to have him. Nobody wanted him, but Jesus wanted him. Here were eyes that he knew, saw the very depths of who he was. Nothing could be hidden from him. Jesus saw the ugliness, he saw the greed, he saw the hunger for more, but here for the very first time were eyes that also saw his desperation, eyes that also saw the utter loneliness, eyes that also saw the hopelessness in Matthew's heart. And of course Matthew had heard of Jesus before. How could you not hear of Jesus? And of course he wanted to go hear the preaching of this man that everyone was talking about. Of course he wanted to go witness the miracles, but he couldn't. He was trapped in the tax booth, enslaved by the decisions that he had made long ago, but Jesus on this day had come looking for him. Matthew doesn't say that I saw a man named Jesus. Matthew says, Jesus saw a man named Matthew. Jesus had come searching for him. While Matthew was still in the tax booth, in the very midst, in the very act of the sinning, when he wasn't asking for Jesus, when he wasn't looking for Jesus, Jesus had come looking for him. Jesus saw a man named Matthew. And I believe that Jesus not only saw his sin, I believe that Jesus not only saw his desperation. But I believe Jesus saw something else. I believe Jesus saw Matthew's future. For all Matthew knew, this was just another day, right? But for Jesus, Jesus woke up, I imagine Jesus woke up this day thinking, oh, this is the day. This is the day that I'm going to call my Matthew. This is the day that I'm gonna go get him. After all, Jesus knew that Matthew would be one of his disciples, right? Jesus knew not only the kind of man that Matthew was, but the kind of man that he was going to make him to be. When Jesus saw Matthew sitting there in the tax booth, he not only saw Matthew as he was, but Matthew as he will be. Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus' love looked goodness into Matthew. Jesus' love looked goodness into Matthew, the goodness that wasn't there yet, but the goodness that would be there. That Jesus looked at the pen in Matthew's hand and thought to himself, see what a nimble pen he has. I'm going to entrust him to write the first of the four gospels. This man that no one's going to entrust with anything, I'm going to entrust to write my very gospel. That Jesus looked at the man who was carefully keeping track of everyone's debt and thought to himself, here's a man who will now declare to everyone the good news that their debt has been paid. And so he said to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew is somewhat modest in his description of his own response. He simply writes, "And and he arose and followed him. But his friend Luke explains it more clearly. Luke writes in Luke 5:28, "And leaving everything, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Jesus found Matthew. In the midst of his sin, in the midst of his shame, and he called him out of that tax booth, and Matthew left that tax booth never to return again. Matthew left everything in order to follow him. He considered his security, he considered his power, his position. Matthew considered it all worthless compared to the joy of following Jesus. This is how Matthew was saved. And if you're a Christian here today, what the gospel of Matthew is telling you is that this is a picture of how you were saved. He saw a man named Matthew, it says. But you can just replace Matthew's name with your name. I want you to do it right now. He saw a man named you. Say it to yourself. Say your name. He saw a man named. He saw a young lady named For me, he saw a boy named Holland. And just like it was for Matthew, without you asking for him, without you looking for him, he came looking for you. And as far as you knew, it was just another day, but it was the day that Jesus had in mind from eternity's past, that it would be the day that he would come find you. That it would be the day that he would call you to himself. He came and he saw you. And I wonder what he saw in you. Maybe he saw in you the greed for money. Maybe he saw in you the lust for sex. Maybe he saw in you a deceitful heart. He saw everything in you that would repel everyone else, but he, he saw it all and he didn't shrink back. You may have been bruised, you may have been broken, you may have been scarred without any thought of anyone ever wanting you, but he wanted you. But that's not all he saw in you, who you were in your brokenness and sin. He also saw in you all that you would be. He saw in you not just a sinner, but one who will one day stand before him radiant and spotless and holy and blameless. He saw. He not only saw in you one that is broken and bruised, but one that he would make whole and complete and not lacking in anything. I don't know what your life was like. I don't know what you were doing. But what Matthew is saying is that you too were in your tax booth. You too were there trapped by your own doing, by your own decisions, by your own desires with no hope of getting out. But then one day Jesus came and found you. He came seeking after you and he called you out through the gospel and through the power of the cross. You too heard those resounding words, follow me. You heard it thunder in your heart and in your mind until you too, like Matthew, left everything in order to follow him. This is your salvation story. Christian, this is how you were saved. And so do you think about your salvation the way that Matthew thought about his salvation? Do you recount it the way that he recounted it? Remember, why is Matthew telling his story here? Because he's saying, let me tell you about the greatest miracle Jesus ever did. Out of all the miracles, let me tell you about the most unbelievable one, that he saved me. He saved me, that he found me, that he called me out out of my tax booth. He saved me. Is that how you think about your salvation, that the greatest thing that could ever happen to a person has happened to you? Is that how you think about it? That the greatest thing that God could ever do for you, he has done for you. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is how you can be saved. Perhaps like Matthew, you've heard of Jesus before. Perhaps perhaps you've contemplated the cross of Jesus and what it means to feel the weight of your sins. You may not have put it that way, but you, you, you sense deep within The Bible says God placed eternity in our hearts. You sense that something's not right. You just don't know what. There's a desperation in you. There's a loneliness in you. And perhaps you've even prayed from time to time, asking God, if you're real, will you make yourself real to me? And so do you now sense him today, calling you out of your tax booth? Do you feel the eyes of Jesus on you today? looking at you only in the way that he can, so piercing, yet so embracing. And so do you hear him calling you to follow him today? And the only question that remains is, so will you? Will you, like Matthew did, leave all that you have in order to follow him? This is how salvation happens. And so if this is how salvation happens, Now, what are some fruits of it that verifies for us that it has actually happened? We just looked at how salvation happens. Now the question is, if this is how a person is saved, what does a saved person then do? What are some of the marks of a genuine saved person? Mark and Luke. Mark and Luke tell us that Matthew immediately throws a big feast at his house. He throws a huge party and Jesus is his honored guest. And who's on the invite list? Anyone and everyone that's willing to come, but the only people willing to come to a tax collector's house are other tax collectors and sinners. Matthew 9, 10 through 13. And as Jesus reclined that table in the house, What we're seeing is that one of the marks of a believer, one of the ways that you can know that you've really been saved by Jesus and have received his mercy is that you want others to know Jesus and experience his mercy as well. You see, what we're seeing is that is what's meant by Matthew leaving everything to follow Jesus is that Matthew left his old ways, but he didn't leave his old friends. Now, make no mistake, he didn't continue to participate along with his friends in what they were doing, but he desperately wanted to be with them so that he could introduce them to the Jesus that he had met. Many of us grew up in churches that taught us the opposite, right? That once you become a Christian, you avoid those people. But what Matthew is showing us here is that one of the primary ways that the gospel spreads and people are saved is when we, those who have been invited, those who have been saved, invite unbelieving family, invite unbelieving friends and coworkers and classmates into our homes and we throw a big party and show them great hospitality. We cook them a great meal and tell them about how Jesus has saved us. Tell them about how Jesus has changed our lives. And especially if you've recently been called by Jesus, right now is the best time to invite your friends over and tell them about Jesus. And this is what precisely the heart of Jesus was as well. Jesus didn't come to the party and awkwardly stand in the corner trying to avoid these other people. Matthew tells us that Jesus was partying it up, that he was laid up, that he was relaxed, that he was reclining at table with tax collectors and sinners, and he was eating with them. But when those old church people saw him, when the Pharisees saw this happening, they said to Jesus, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They were asking, how can someone who claims to be a man of God hang out with such people, hang out with such sinners? And Jesus, hearing all of this, he answers and his reply is genius. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, he's saying, can you imagine going up to a doctor and saying, my friend Carson, who's also a doctor, can you imagine me going up to Carson and saying, I've got to say, Carson, I don't care too much about the kind of people you've been hanging around. You seem to always be around sick people. That would be ridiculous, right? Or can you imagine a doctor who has all the training and all the knowledge to help the sick, but refuses to be around sick people because they're afraid that they might catch it? That would be the world's most useless doctor, right? But that's the kind of life that many of us live. We've received the gospel. We know what people need to be saved, but we don't ever hang out with the people that need to hear it. While others of us have no problem hanging out with lost people. We have no problems partying it up with them, but we need to also remember that a doctor that is sick can't be of much help either. And so make no mistake, Jesus is not condoning sin or participating in the sin by being around sinners. A physician doesn't hang around a patient's bedside because they enjoy the atmosphere. There's nothing enjoyable about the sickness, about the sin. The physician hangs around the patient's bedside because it's their business to make them well. That's why he's there. The only way Jesus could ever heal the sick is by both, by being set apart and separate from their sin, but at the same time, oh, so near and present with the sinner. And so we need to do the same. Jesus hung around sinners so much that he became known as the friend, as the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Out of all the ways, think about it, out of all the ways that Jesus's relationship with sinners could be described. It was described that he was their friend. And that's good news for sinners like us. And we're instructed here on how to relate with people that the world and the religious see as sinners. There's a right way to be in relationship with sinners and that is to be their friend. And to be known and to have a reputation for being their friend, even at the cost of being condemned by church folks. Why? Because we're a people that just can't get over the fact that Jesus came and befriended a people like us, that Jesus came and befriended sinners like us. And so one of the marks, one of the fruits of someone that has genuinely been saved by Jesus is that we, like him, become the friend of sinners. We set ourselves apart from the sin but we don't set ourselves apart from the sinner. Another mark of the believer, another fruit of someone that has been saved by Jesus is that we become a people fixated on God's mercy, not a people fixated on our sacrifice. We become a people fixated on what, not on what we can do for God, sacrificing for him, but a people fixated on what he has done for us and his mercy sacrificing for us. Jesus tells the Pharisees one more thing. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus says, go and learn what it means, and he quotes Hosea 6.6, that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. The Pharisees were known for their religion-keeping. I don't mean God's word keeping, I mean religion keeping. They filled their lives with empty religious things to do and heaped these requirements on everyone else as well. In other words, they were making sacrifices. They were making this sacrifice and that sacrifice. They were doing this for God and that for God, ultimately, so that they could put God in their debt. They didn't want mercy. Mercy was too scary. Mercy means you're not in control. Instead, they wanted to make as many sacrifices for God as they could so that they could see it, so that they could say, See, God, now you have to do this, this, this for me. So now you have to save me. And isn't that what we do with God sometimes? We desperately try to obey. Not because out of great joy that God has saved us, but because we're trying to earn, because we're trying to put God in our debt, because we're trying to say, look, God, look at all these things that I'm doing for you. Look at all the sacrifices that I'm making for you. And so shouldn't you bless me? And so shouldn't you give me what I've been asking for? But who has ever given a gift to him that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, and so why do you think you're so anxious and worried all the time? Because you're saying, I better obey. I better obey or God won't bless me. I better obey or God won't save me. We in our sacrificing say, I obey. I obey, that's why God accepts me. I obey, I do all these things for God and that's why God's going to save me and that's why God's going to bless me. But God in his mercy is saying to you, church, no, you can't ever earn. You can't ever do enough to earn or deserve my salvation. That's the bad news. But the good news is that all that I would require of you in my mercy, through my son, I have accomplished for you. I've already done it all for you. It is finished, Jesus says. In mercy, here it is. All that you were desperately trying to earn, all that you could never earn, here it is freely, right? I've already blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ, and so now, follow me. And so now, obey me. Not so that you could earn, but purely for the joy of being with me. God tells us that there is none righteous, not even one. That when it comes to God and us, that the only way that we could ever relate with him, only way that we could have a relationship with him is not by our sacrificing, is not by our doing, but by his mercy. That the dividing line between the saved and the unsaved isn't between the righteous and the unrighteous, isn't between those who obey and those who don't obey. God says, none of you obey. None of you obey the way that I require it. There's none righteous, but the dividing line between the saved and the unsaved is between the proud and the humble. The dividing line is between the proud that says, I'll make enough sacrifices, I'll do enough good things, I'll clean myself up, and then God will save me, and then God will bless me, and then surely God will have to do something for me. And the humble person that looks down with tears dripping down, pounds their chest and says, have mercy. Mercy on me, God, a sinner. That's my only hope, your mercy. And so another genuine mark of a believer is someone who has utterly abandoned looking at their sacrifices, someone who has utterly given up looking at all that they've ever done for God, but someone who only looks to what God and his mercy has done for them. And so this is the miracle of our salvation. By his doing and his doing alone. While you were dead in your transgressions and sins, God sent his son. While you were in your tax booth going about your day, when you weren't asking for Jesus, when you weren't looking for Jesus, one day Jesus came looking for you. And he saw you, all of your sin, all of the ugliness, all that would repel everyone else, but he, he saw it all and he still wanted you. He saw your sin. He saw your brokenness. He saw all that you were, but he also saw all that you would be. And he calls you out, and he's saying, follow me. He's saying, follow me to become the friend of sinners. He's calling us to love holiness. He's calling us to love mercy, to never return again to that tax booth to never return again to pursuing your sins, but to return again and again to your friends who don't know yet, Jesus. Point them to the mercy that has found you. Point them to the Jesus that has come after you. Point them to the wonder of your salvation. Church, let us be a church who hears again afresh the word of Jesus, follow me. Follow me. And let us be a church. Let us be known for a church. Let us be a people known as the people who said, yes. Jesus, whatever you ask, wherever you tell me to go, whatever you tell me to do, my answer is yes, I'll follow you. I'll leave everything to follow you. For the rest of my life, I'll follow you. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would stir up in us once again the joy of our salvation, the wonder of our salvation, the miracle of our salvation. Father, in our minds, help us return once again to that time, to that moment when for us it was just another day, another day of living the way that we want, another day of Pursuing the things that we most desired. Another day of feeling the desperate loneliness. And yet for you, it was a day that you had in mind to call us to yourself. And Father, help us to feel the wonder of that. And Lord, let this joy, let this wonder of our salvation take such root and produce such fruit that we would never be able to hold it in, and we'll never be able to just keep it to ourselves, Lord. But will you use us to reach those who do not yet know you? Father, let us be a people that say we cannot stop speaking of what we have seen and what we have heard. Let the wonder of our salvation be so wonderful that we can't help but to overflow and to share it with others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.